we are in Revelation chapter 2. You want, if you, if you pick up, we're picking up in verse 12. Um, that's where we've, we've got to so far. Did you know that if 99.9% was good enough, that there would be one unsafe plane landing in Heathrow every single day? Did you know that if 99.9% was good enough, that the UK Postal Service would lose 51,250 items of mail every day. And they probably do. <laughs> Did you know that doctors would drop 50 new babies every single day? That 500 incorrect surgical procedures would be performed every week? That 22,000 checks would be deducted from the wrong bank account every day and that your heart would miss 32,000 beats per year. That is, if 99.9% was good enough. The thing is that we actually expect more from a postal service, from our banks, and actually even from the NHS. Yet, somewhat ironically, when it comes to our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, many Christians are willing to give much much less to God. See, even 99.9% isn't enough in God's eyes. He requires everything. He requires 100%. And he will not share you with anything or with anyone else. He expects total and absolute commitment. The thing is that Satan has got a different view on this matter. Because he would like you to believe a very different message. That a little bit of compromise is okay. That it's almost acceptable. In fact, it seems somewhat unreasonable, does it not, to think that we could be expected to give 100%, to give everything to God. But the Bible describes Satan as a serpent, as a snake. And in this letter, we're going to see how crafty he really is. Let's read Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, but even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you <clears throat> who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the, to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious. I will give some of the hidden manna. 
I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, as we come to your word, we pray, help us by your Spirit to understand it. Father, I pray, Lord, for the words that I speak, Father, they be your words. And Father, you apply this to my heart and to our hearts together as we come to read and to explore it. And Father, I pray that you would change us. Lord, help us to apply this to our lives for your glory and for your honor and for the fulfillment of your mission and your kingdom here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen. The description of this city in Pergamum is, is shocking because it's described in verse 13 as the place where Satan has set up his throne. This is the place where Satan lived. And because of this, they're facing a huge amount of opposition, producing persecution, in fact, even facing death because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, this city of Pergamum was also called the greatest city in Asia Minor. It is the first temple dedicated to Caesar, and it was just an avid promoter of, of Roman culture. The city was also had a temple dedicated to Asclepius, the god of Thank you, thank you. Ascalaphius. I really struggle, for those who don't, I really struggle pronouncing these long names. I've been practicing that for days. Days. Amazing, isn't it? So, where was it? Yeah. <coughs> this is the God of healing, and it's basically symbolized by the entwined serpent on the staff, which of course is still used in, in, as a medical symbol today. Satan, of course, as we've mentioned already, is talked about a lot in Scripture as being a serpent. So Pergamum had become this major center of religion and culture, with many gods, many idols, in fact many immoral rituals and practices. This was a place of evil where actually everything and anything was tolerated Actually, that is, except for Christianity. Because of the biblical teaching and the belief that there is only one way to God through the Lord Jesus Christ, that was not acceptable within this culture. It's worth noting that our society appears to be going down, if not already there, a very similar sort of road, where people will tolerate almost anything except for someone who claims absolute truth. And when you begin to proclaim that the Bible is the Word of God, absolute truth, and that there is only one way to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to get into trouble. Some people are not going to like it. It's for many of these reasons that this city was called the throne or the seat of Satan. But the church in Pergamum does receive the approval of the most important person. They receive the approval of the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 13. And like their brothers and sisters in Smyrna, the believers in Pergamum had suffered persecution and at least one of their men had died because of his faith. Yet, in spite of this intense suffering, this church had remained true and remained faithful to God. 
They refused to call Caesar Lord. Instead, they proclaimed Jesus Christ to be Lord. And it's significant how Jesus describes himself here in verse 12. In verse 12. He is the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, this would certainly have been a huge encouragement to those people living at that time because this sword was also the symbol of the Roman proconsul. But it's Jesus who wields the ultimate power. He is the one who is victorious. He is the one who will ultimately be victorious with the sword in his hand, the one who is undefeatable. It's so much more important that this church fears the sword of Christ rather than the sword of Rome. But there's a problem with this church. The problem? Compromise. And the outward persecution of this church by Satan had failed, but another more subtle tactic was really, really succeeding. So despite their courage in standing up against persecution, these believers had a problem with sin. But this sin had started so subtly, so little, so little, just one little step, but before they have known it, they have gone down a path that has led to the disapproval of Jesus. And Satan, who had been unable to destroy them by coming to them like a roaring lion, as described for us in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, where we're told we need to be alert, we need to be sober, your enemy, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The thing is about roaring lions, you tend to spot them, don't you? You get chased by a roaring lion, you don't tend to miss it, and you tend to run. Fair enough? So if someone comes to you and says to you, deny Jesus or die, you need to be pretty silly not to spot the fact that that's probably a blatant attack from Satan. It's fairly obvious, isn't it? We can't miss that one. And hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to stand up for Jesus under such circumstances. But when someone comes to you and says to you in work, you know what, cover for me. I'm just going to nip out for, for 30 minutes. If the boss phones, tell him I've gone to the toilet. Just tell a little lie, you know. It's not, not really matter. And it's so easy for us to compromise. It's so easy for us to lie. And it doesn't seem that much, does it? After all, you know, we want to fit in with our work colleagues. We want to just be part of the team, don't we? So if we just add little laughs, but that, those, that little lie opens up the door, opens up the gateway to deception. A road that we could walk down further and further and further. The same principle applies to every area of sin and temptation, whether it be sexual immorality, greed, pride, the list of course could go on. And the pressure today to compromise is huge. And Satan's subtle whisper does honesty or purity or righteousness, does it really matter? Surely 100% is just too high. Nobody could ever possibly reach those sort of standards. Yet Satan causes a huge amount of damage by coming in as a deceiving serpent. 
And this is what's happening in this church in Pergamum. A group of compromised people were infiltrating the Christian fellowship and they were actually causing so much more damage from within than actually persecution would ever cause from the outside. And Jesus hated their doctrines and their practices. And for this, Jesus rebukes this persecuted church. He says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, there are two hallmarks to the teaching mentioned here in verse 14. The first is false teaching and false worship. So these infiltrators were called Nicolaitans. It means to rule over people. We've already heard about them back in Ephesus. They were teaching what is called the doctrine of Balaam, which we'll come back to in a moment. But they were lording over the people. These are people with a certain amount of influence who are exerting their teaching, their pressure, and they're lording over these people, and they are leading them astray. The second hallmark was sexual immorality. Reference to Numbers 25, verse 1 to 5, it says, where the men began to indulge in sexual immorality with the Moabite women, who invited them to the sacrifices, sorry, invited them to sacrifice to their gods, the people ate the sacrificial meal and bowed down before these gods. So Israel yoked themselves to the veil of poor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. But really to understand the serious nature of this insidious group, we, for, we need to get some sort of understanding of the story of Balaam. Now, some of you may already know it, of course. It's recorded in Numbers chapter 22 to 25. If you get a chance this week, do read it. We're not going to read it now because of time, of course. But Balaam was a true prophet of God. But he sold out his prophetic gift to earn money from the king of Balak, who hired him to curse the people of Israel. But as this story develops, we discover that God prevented Balaam from cursing Israel. In fact, the story involves a donkey that talked to him, friend of Kumbalani's. Um, another inside joke, folks, you don't know about it, sorry. Kumbalani has got it. The last time he prays, he always mentions a donkey. It's become his trademark signature when he preaches, all right? Anyway. Um, so the... Um, Anyway, in fact, what happened really, God actually goes, even further, God turns this curse into a blessing. But in the long term, King Balak still got his money's worth. Because it was through the advice of Balaam that he was able to make friends with the nation of Israel and he invited the Jewish people to worship and to feast on foreign pagan altars. And the Jewish people fell right into this trap. They compromised their faith. They worshipped foreign gods. They took, took part in sexual rituals. They dishonored the name of God. And God's anger burned against them. As a result of their disobedience, their sin, and their compromise, God's judgment fell and 24,000 people died. But why is this relevant to Pergamum? And actually, why is it so important to you and me today? 
because no one, no one is beyond falling for this sort of subtle and insidious deception. A group within the church in Pergamum were saying the sort of same thing that, that the Jews were saying in Balaam's day. They were saying, you know what, there's nothing wrong with being friends with Rome. What harm could it possibly do if we pinch a little bit of incense from the altar, if we worship their God, if we affirm our loyalty to, to Rome? After all, it's the easy way out. You know, the, the people around us will think so much more of us. We won't be persecuted anymore. Things will be so much easier, so much better. Or, perhaps more modern terms, you don't want to be too different from the society around you. We need to be more tolerant. We can't expect Christians to live to those biblical standards anymore. You know, that was then, and this is now, and, and things have changed, and we need to relax a little bit. Just be a little bit more tolerant. And keeping sex for, it within marriage, marriage it's, it's just young people. After all, God is love, and God, God would never judge anybody, would he? Sadly, it's not unusual to hear these sort of words, even from leaders within the evangelical wing of the church today. There's a cost in following Jesus. At the very least, you will at times be accused of being narrow-minded for Antipas, who refused to compromise. He was martyred. He lost his life. Even as many people around him were giving in to the pressures of Rome and the Roman culture as they were compromising, of course, it meant that they were accepted to the Romans. They actually were able to escape persecution. But the cost to their faith was tragic. Now, the temptation today to compromise is equally as great. If we want to get ahead, perhaps we just cut a few corners, just blend into the culture around us, and it's certainly going to help us prosper. But do we ever stop to think, what is the cost to your faith? As a local church, we are engaged to Christ, his bride. And we must be kept pure. But the church or individual Christian who compromises with this world to get ahead, to simply fit in, commits spiritual adultery and is unfaithful to Jesus. False teaching... Sexual immorality is still one of Satan's really effective weapons in bringing down Christians. And so often he does it without anybody ever even noticing. And false teaching may be, may be presented with a smile and with a, with a gentle politeness, but it is deadly and the Lord hates it. Now, you don't need me to tell you that the pressure today is still widespread within our society. So sexual immorality, anything that is outside biblical marriage between a man and a woman and materialism are still the most pervasive idols within our culture and therefore likely to be most pervasive within our churches. They're our biggest threat and our biggest danger. The false teachers of Pergamum were presumably claiming that such practices were perfectly fine for Christians. You know, it's okay. And you can imagine the sort of thing that's being said, that's still being said today. You know, you don't want to be intolerant. Times have changed. Everybody else is, is doing it. 
if you stand against this, well, you, you just look irrelevant. But false teaching matters and sexual immorality matters because it opposes, it's opposed to Jesus and Jesus is utterly unbending and unchanging in his opposition towards it. So in verse 16, he says to this church, Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And Jesus calls this church to repent. Antipas had felt the sword of Rome. This church in Pergamum would feel the sword of Christ if they did not repent. Now, this is not a reference to the return of Jesus. In fact, this is the imminent, impending judgment that will come against a church or, a Christ, or Christians who live in disobedience to the Word of God. And we live, we talk a lot about grace and mercy within this church, and so we should. It is so right. Listen, God is gracious. He is loving. He is merciful. He is slow to anger. But he is also a God who judges. And the Bible calls for obedience and for purity among his people. Twice in this short letter, Jesus describes himself as the one who holds the sharp sword. This is not, this is to be taken seriously. There is no excuse. They have been warned. Repent, therefore. And there are repercussions to sin and to disobedience. But just like in these previous churches, the closing appeal is to individuals. When Jesus' call comes, it's, per it's personal. It's always personal. He or she who has ears to hear, let them hear. But alongside the call to repent comes a promise to those who listen and repent. With Jesus, there is always hope. There is always hope. And there are three promises that Jesus finished with. They come from the very mouth of Jesus. The first promise is this, is of God's provision. In the same way that God had given Israel manna to eat in the wilderness, he will provide for all of your needs. God is a God who provides. He will give you everything that you need. Not necessarily everything that you want, but he is a God of ultimate provision and the resources of heaven are unlimited. And God will provide. So don't eat from anywhere else or try to find nourishment or false, from false worship or sin that will never satisfy. You need to feast on God's holy food, the bread of life found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, Matthew 4 verse 4. And some of you are struggling. Some I know about, some I don't know about. Battling with sin. Maybe undernourished spiritually because you're eating the wrong things. And you're refusing the bread of life and craving after things that will never satisfy. 
come to the throne of God. The one who will provide. Don't go to the throne of Satan. Repent and find the unlimited, satisfying provision in God alone. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The promise of God. The God who will provide. The second promise is this. God's acceptance and grace. This is symbolized by a white stone here. There are two meanings to this white stone. In those days, a white stone was put in a vessel by a judge as a sign that a person was acquitted after the trial. They are declared not guilty. And they are given their freedom. But it is also used as a ticket to gain entry into a feast. And both these meanings can certainly be applied to believers in the spiritual sense. See, the promise of Jesus to those who repent is that they have been declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. See, anyone who comes to the cross of Jesus Christ by faith will receive forgiveness. Because it's there that your sins have been paid for, and it's there that you have been set free acquitted by grace, declare the declaration over your life, not guilty. You're free. Not because you're good enough, not because you've reached some magical standard, but because Jesus Christ has paid the price on your behalf. It's been dealt with. It's been done. Completely set free through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, I give you a white stone. That gives you entrance. Gives you open, unrestricted access into the greatest party, the greatest celebration that will never, ever end. And you will feast on and with Christ now and for all of eternity. What a promise. What a promise from God. Not only, not only do you have God's provision over your life, but you have God's acceptance and grace. So therefore repent, Jesus says. Turn to me. The third promise is this. It's a new name. God's name. Not only are you accepted, but you are family. It's one thing to be welcomed in as a friend. It is something else to be adopted as a son or daughter, to take on a new name, the family name, the name of Christ, the name of your Father in heaven. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 to 5 says, For I chose you in him before the creation of this world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined you for adoption as a son and daughter through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. This is the promise of God to everyone who repents. A new name, a new family, new family values, a new identity that is, that is yours in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the promises for those who come to Jesus for those who will not compromise. God's provision, God's acceptance and grace, and a new name, the family name. You're welcomed. You're accepted. You are joint 
heirs with Jesus Christ. But this promise and these promises come with a challenge. And you just stop and ask yourself maybe a couple of questions. So I suggest that perhaps you take some time out this week or later on today and just ponder some of these things. First one is this. In what area are you feeling the greatest pressure to conform to this world's standards and culture? Are there especially areas when it comes to idolatry? Idolatry is any worship of anything else other than God. It doesn't be bad things. It could be football. It could be running. It could be anything. Anything that takes the rightful place of God is idol worship, idolatry in God's eyes. So other areas, especially when it comes to idolatry and immorality, that you need to repent of. The bigger question is, will you? Sometimes we establish that there's problems, we need to deal with some things in our lives, but we do nothing about it. Jesus says, repent. Therefore, come to me. And if you're struggling with habitual sin, whether it be sexual sin or any other, don't forget that Satan is deceitful. And another tactic of, tactic of his is to lie to you and tell you that you are just too sinful, that you, what you've done this time is just beyond the forgiveness of God. That is not true. Instead, listen to the truth of God's word. It says, do not be deceived. Neither the sexual, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Pretty much includes everybody. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, whatever you have done, whatever you are struggling with, there is hope and there is forgiveness to all who repent. That is the hope of the gospel. There is hope and forgiveness to all who come to him. But listen, compromise is not an option. Jesus wants 100%. He wants all of your heart. He wants everything. Let's stand together and pray. <coughs> Father, we, we do thank you for your word. Not even the hard bits. And the tough bits, Lord. Lord, we thank you that you call us to make us more like Jesus. Lord, you challenge us, Lord, for our own good. And Lord, we thank you as well for the promises of your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord God, that you're not about knocking us down, but Lord, calling us closer and closer to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, so we thank you for the provision. We thank you for the hope. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you love us. Lord, that you are slow to anger. And you give us opportunity, Lord, to come. So, Lord, we come. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now over my life, 
over my friends here. By your Spirit, just challenge us. Lord, we need to be challenged. Convict us for that is necessary. But Lord, just gently call us closer and closer to you, Jesus. And Lord, we thank you as we come to the cross once again. We receive forgiveness. And we see hope. So Lord, to you we say that your name is worthy of our praise. And all glory and all honor and all power belongs to you, the one who holds the sword, the one who is victorious. Jesus, we come to you. And we give ourselves to you. 100%. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, folks.